John chapter 9, in the exchange that takes place between the religious leaders, the religious establishment, and Jesus at the tail end of John 8, things really in this process come to a head. Before we get to John 9 verse 1, look back to verse 53 of chapter 8, because in this battle royale, a question gets posed. The religious establishment, finally, they just they ask Jesus, very matter-of-fact, point blank, who do you make yourself out to be? This is a good question to ask. And Jesus' answer to that question is not only radical and to a degree controversial, but the implications of what Jesus says here, well, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, were clearly understood by those present. Verse 54, we'll get a running head start into John 9. Jesus answered this question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, well, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham, Jesus said, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Well, the Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This Old Testament title for God. Then they took up stones to throw at him. They're not playing a first century version of dodgeball. Their intent here is, is malicious. But we're told Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, <clears throat> going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And then you get to chapter 9, verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, this direct link, a continuous flow, Jesus saw a man <clears throat> who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, as Jesus leaves this mob wanting to stone him to death, he exits the temple and he makes his way through the winding streets of downtown Jerusalem. John tells us that as he's passing by, he sees a man who is blind from birth. Now, the first thing you should note from the way John sets this description is that first Jesus saw, he saw a man. This word saw, it implies more than just seeing. It, it indicates perception. It, it describes an intent. Jesus, no doubt, saw in this moment much more than anyone else. You should also keep in mind the description that John provides of this being a man. It indicates that, that he was a man of adult age. He was an adult male. Now, we have no idea how old this man was. The passage doesn't tell us. We'll come to find his parents are still alive uh, later in the chapter, which means he's not elderly. And yet, tragically, John tells us that this man, this adult man, has been blind from birth. It seems most likely in the context that the man's blindness was some type of congenital birth defect. His blindness, no doubt, hadn't been the result of some type of misstep or, or an accident, he hadn't become blind at some point in his life or, or had been maimed. This man had been born into darkness and had remained in this state his entire life. He's never seen. Imagine that. 
He's never seen anything, ever. He's never witnessed the amazing colors of a sunrise or the deep hues of a sunset. He's never seen his father's face or gazed into the eyes of, of no doubt, a loving mom. Yes, you can say the man's alive, but in such a condition, has he ever really lived? Because of his blindness, so much of his life, practically speaking, remained a mystery. And what's worse, unlike a person who comes to lose their sight, because this man was born blind, he didn't even know what he was missing. In many ways, this man is just simply ignorant to the full scope of the wonderful world, this reality around him. What makes this detail that he was blind from birth so fascinating is that of the five instances recorded in the gospel narratives where Jesus heals someone of blindness, this is the only time that we're specifically told that the individual had been born in such a condition. It's, it's a different dynamic. You see, coming off this frustrating experience that Jesus has just had with the religious leaders, reminding one in which they pick up stones to kill him, I believe this is one of the reasons, the, the fact that he had been born blind, that Jesus, as he's passing by, stops and looks at this man so intently. I, th I think the context here is why he caught Jesus' attention. In such a state, this man, as we'll really come to see, perfectly illustrated humanity blinded by the ignorance of sin. Not only were these religious men that Jesus has just interacted with blind to the truth that was right in front of them, they even lacked the context to know what they were missing. They were completely ignorant. These men were totally lost. Their Messiah was standing in front of them, but they couldn't see. Jesus saw a man, and he stopped. Why? Because it reminded him of the men he just had a conversation with. Now, as the scene unfolds, it becomes evident to the disciples that, that Jesus had grown enamored by this particular blind man, no doubt sitting there along the road, asking, begging for alms, which is why they promptly chime in with a theological question. No doubt relevant, but not exactly very tactful. Jesus stops, he's looking at this man, and the disciples jump in, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Well, verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Consistent with the theological thought of the day, the disciples question didn't lack merit. It was consistent with conversations that were held in theological circles. Their question, though, it centers on, on really the causation of the man's blindness. Like, what caused his blindness? Now, the Jews believed and taught that physical maladies were the direct result of sin and were therefore to be seen as evidence of, of a divine judgment. And to be fair... That's not a, a crazy uh, position. The Old Testament 
is filled with examples that validate that kind of perspective, right? Go all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 19, where, where we read that the men of Sodom were what? Struck blind before judgment. Uh, Elisha in 2 Kings 16 prayed, and God caused a blindness to fall on the entire Syrian army. Maladies equating to judgments, we even see this with Moses, his sister Miriam, in Numbers 12. She challenged Moses' leadership, and what happened? God struck her with leprosy. The idea that physical infirmities, maladies, illnesses, could be the judgment of God, it wasn't a crazy position nor a crazy question. That said, the one complication with this particular theological explanation for physical disease was undoubtedly the existence of birth defects. It's hard to attribute whose sin was responsible. Because this man had been born blind, the disciples wonder if his subsequent blindness had been the result of a parental sin, and therefore he was the victim of it, or was evidence of some type of prenatal sin that he was now being judged for, a sin in the womb that he'd been struck with blindness over. Either way, regardless of the debate, the disciples, they make an assumption. Whether it's his parents or him, they assume that his blindness was some type of judgment. Now how surprised these men must have been when Jesus' response directly dispels this conventional assumption. Now, Jesus avoids the much larger conversation. He doesn't get into the prenatal sin or parental sin. All Jesus says, is, and he's clear about it, this man's blindness, it's not the result of his sin. Nor is it the result of a sin committed by his parents. Jesus is letting his disciples know that his condition was not to be seen as a punishment, nor was it to be seen as any type of judgment. Instead, Jesus says that the man had been born blind for a different reason. He says, look at the text again. He's blind, why? Not because of sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Admittedly, that's kind of a, a tough idea. It's a tough pill to swallow. In the Greek, this word works, the works of God, is irgon. It, it, it means business. Or more specifically, that which one is occupied with. The works of God, the business of God. Additionally, the word that we have revealed, it means to make manifest. Or to make visible or known what had previously been hidden or unknown. That the works of God, the business of God, may be revealed where beforehand it couldn't have been seen. To the question of the origins of the man's blindness... Jesus is basically answering that his condition wasn't a consequence of any sin. But his condition had been allowed into his life to create an opportunity by which God would work and ultimately reveal himself to this man in a way it couldn't have been done otherwise. In some ways, think of it like this. Who sinned? And Jesus answered, nah, nobody sinned. This man was born blind for this reason, so that I could come along and do this, verse 6, 
So when Jesus had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, or, or literally anointed means that he, he spread the clay onto the man's eyes. And Jesus said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which John tells us is translated sent, the pool of the sent one. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Like what a crazy scene to have been present for. You know, to, to, have, to have been present to see this happen, right? There's this blind man. Theological conversation happens. Then what takes place? Jesus spits onto the ground. And then he stoops down and he rubs the spit into the dirt to make like a tacky substance. Jesus then, as he's collecting this tacky substance into his hands, he stands up and then he proceeds to cover the blind man's eyes with mud, bizarre. And amazingly, no one attempts to stop him. Like at what point are you Peter and you're like, Jesus, I don't think this is really appropriate. You're kind of picking on the blind guy. He didn't even see you coming. Like no one attempts to stop him. Nor does the blind man resist what had to have been kind of an awkward experience. It's not every day someone walks up, spits in the ground, makes some mud, and splatters it across your eyes. Beyond that, what makes this story even stranger to me is that never once does Jesus tell the man that he's doing these things to heal his blindness. You, you notice that that's not mentioned. It's not as though Jesus is like, listen, this is about to get weird. I'm going to spit in the ground. I'm going to make some mud. I'm going to put it on your eyes, but it's okay because when we're done, you're going to be able to see. Like, there's no preface to what's happening. Jesus just acts. Additionally, the instructions to go and to wash, they're not tethered to any particular promise, are they? Like all Jesus says is that the man needed to go to the pool of Siloam and wash out his eyes, which was the most evident thing you could have told a man that you just rubbed dirt in his face about. Of course I need to go wash out the mud. You just put in my eyes. Now, while it's, I think, safe to assume that the entire situation had been, had been bizarre for this man, honestly, I, I think the, the, the disciples are kind of standing there totally paralyzed. Like they, I don't think the disciples had any idea what Jesus was actually doing, what was going on. You know, earlier I mentioned that Jesus healed people of blindness on at least five occasions recorded in the Gospels. This particular instance happens to be the third of the five. In Matthew chapter 9, we're given the first account of Jesus healing, specifically two, men's, uh, two men of blindness, and he does so by walking up and touching their eyes. And the second healing, recorded in Mark 8, Jesus actually walks up to a man and he spits into his eyes. And then that guy ends up seeing more than he probably should have, so Jesus touches his eyes to restore his sight. This, John 9, is the third instance, but after this, Jesus will heal a man of blindness by casting out a demon that was responsible. That's recorded in, in Luke 11. And then on his way through, Jeru through Jericho, on the way to Jerusalem, to die for the sins of the world, Jesus will heal a man named Bartimaeus by just speaking. And he heals the man. 
That event is documented in, in Mark chapter 10. My point here is there was absolutely no precedent for what Jesus was doing here. It's not as though this routine of spitting, making mud, putting it on the eyes was like Jesus' go-to healing mechanism, like his go-to move, where the disciples were like, oh, we know what's about to happen. We've seen this before. Like Jesus has never healed a man of blindness in this way, nor will he ever heal a man of blindness like this again. Like clearly, Jesus is, is letting all of us know that the mechanism for the healing had very little to do with the healing itself. So we kind of have to ask, right? Why would Jesus heal this man in such a dramatic fashion? Especially when Jesus could have just spoken and the healing would have happened, like with Bartimaeus. Now there are those who suppose that Jesus incorporated such a strange approach. And in all five blindness healing miracles, they, he did it all in a different way so that it couldn't be replicated by his disciples. And I think there's some validity to this, this position. We as, as people, you know, if Jesus had healed people of blindness this way all five times, you're going to have uh, blindness healing services where we have mud, right? And we're caking it on people's face. Like Jesus wants to avoid his disciples trying to, to replicate the mechanism. The mechanism doesn't matter. And yet, in context to the last two days, and specifically the events we've been looking at recorded in John 7 and John 8 as it relates to the Feast of Tabernacles, I think there are two bigger explanations for why Jesus uses such kind of a strange approach. First, don't forget, that very morning, Jesus has just declared himself to be what? The great I am. Like Jesus has made a claim of deity to be the God of the Old Testament. As such, I don't, I don't find it to be a coincidence that Jesus intentionally selects the very building blocks that he used to form the first man, Adam, to now repair this man's sight. And what was the building block? Dirt. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we're told that God formed man from what? From the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You know, for those who find such a miracle like this to be preposterous, please know that it is completely logical to believe the very God who made man from the dust of the ground would also have the power and ability to repair a broken component of that man using what? Dust of the ground. Aside from the fact that Jesus is performing a miracle in order to kind of demonstrate his divinity, the instruction here to wash in the pool of Siloam, I also think is significant. Like connecting back to the priestly procedures connected to the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would go to where? The pool of Siloam to draw out water, to take and pour it out on the altar. A situation that the day before this, Jesus interrupted on the Temple Mount when he said what? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Living water, right? I think Jesus has the man go wash in that very pool, so significant and tied to the Feast of Tabernacles because he's again wanting to draw an important distinction between himself and what he came to accomplish and that of empty religion, the empty religion of Judaism. We'll get more to that topic next Sunday. Now before we get to the larger lessons that we can take from this story, 
I think there are many important lessons. I want to take just a moment and consider what the day had been like for this blind man. If you'll just kind of indulge me for a moment, I want to play out the scene. Again, it's the day following the close of the Feast of Tabernacles. With the masses now on their way home, at last, here you are, the blind man, and your life can finally return to a comfortable normalcy, right? The, the, the bustling city, whose population had swelled the previous week, has now settled back. You're blind, that's helpful, because you're now back to the familiar sounds, the rhythms of the city you're accustomed to. You wake up that morning, you go about your daily routine, which undoubtedly leads you to your customary place on Beggar's Row. My guess is this morning, at some point, you probably heard the distant cries of a woman. You had later come to learn that this woman had been caught in adultery. As you're sitting there, you probably also hear an uproar come from the temple. You don't know what's happening or, or what was, something is going on. Someone has said something that has incited a mob. You can hear it. You don't know what's going on. You probably are sitting there pondering what's happening. I imagine you hear Jesus and his entourage. They're making their way down the street. I'm also probably sure that your faculties grow heightened when this group walking down the street kind of stops, very close to your location. I, I assume a sixth sense probably kicks in. You, you sense that someone's staring at you. You can't see. You don't know who it is. But you know you're now the, the, the focus of someone. Then no, you're out, no doubt you grow uncomfortable when these suspicions are confirmed. You hear the question about sin and blindness. And you know that it's pertaining to you and your condition. And what's worse, you know the inquiry was just made to a rabbi. Rabbi, who sinned? How embarrassing. Verse 11 indicates that while Jesus' name hasn't been mentioned, the blind man does come to, to understand that the rabbi is Jesus. While you brace yourself to hear really what you've been told all your life, that what? That your blindness was the judgment of God. Nothing prepares you when you hear Jesus' response. I mean, you're bracing yourself for it, for the rabbi to say that you had sinned in some way or had been your parents. But then you hear Jesus say, no, neither this man nor his parents sinned. What? He's never heard that before. That's never been articulated, his direction. And then, and then he continues to hear Jesus say, but, but his blindness is that so God can work and reveal himself. You know, Jerusalem is not a big place. It's one of the things that kind of shocks you when you go visit. It's not a big city at all. And the reality is, is gossip moves at the speed of sound. Because you spend your days on the streets. You're likely familiar with what people have been saying. Like you've heard the rumors, the rumblings, the healings. You've likely at some point even been within earshot of Jesus as he's teaching. 
If there had been any doubt as to the identity of the rabbi staring you down, it was probably removed when you hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. Uh, Who would make such a claim? But I've heard this man make that claim before. As you're pondering the implications of your blindness, not being evidence of God's judgment, and instead an opportunity for God to work, you then hear footsteps approach. What must it have been like for this man to hear who approaches, well up a big loogie, and spits it on the ground right in front of him? Weird. You hear the man stoop down. What is he doing? You hear him rise back up. You're standing toe-to-toe with this man. You have no idea what's about to happen. Could anything have really prepared you for the moment Jesus touches your eyes? Don't touch my face, man. Give me some space. I mean, I mean, initially you're shocked by the invasion of your personal space. But you're likely just, just frozen. As Jesus is smearing into your eyes clay. Questions are overtaking you, right? What's he doing? Why is he doing this to you? Was Jesus really who they claimed he was? What did all of this mean? Finally, when it becomes evident Jesus is finished, you don't think twice obeying his instruction to go to the pool of Siloam to wash off the mud. As you're making your way, what had initially been probably cool to the touch doesn't take long to harden and probably grow irritating. Yeah, you might not be able to see, but you still got nerve endings. Someone's rubbed dirt in your face. You're fumbling your way through the city, making your way to Siloam. And finally, you get to the pool's edge. You fall on your chest, and you frantically begin cupping water to your face. And again, nothing could have prepared you for what happens next. As you continue to splash yourself and chunks of stiffened mud begin to fall from your eyes, an almost overwhelming sensation occurs. The darkness is for the first time invaded by a bright but but hazy light. Your heart starts to race. This is an unexpected development. Then, Then with each handful of water loosening the tacky clay from your eyes, more and more light comes followed in. Then there's a spectrum of color. Slowly shapes begin to take form. Finally, you can make out images. I can see. Those dry eyes swell with tears. You're overcome with emotion. You know, the first thing you probably noticed was your hands. You've never seen these things before. Then your attention probably turns to the the deep bluish green water there in front of you. Finally, you're enraptured by a reflection staring back at you. The first person you see is yourself. You think, man, I'm as ugly as I always thought I was. I have no doubt that once enough of the mud was gone, the man rose to his feet and he surveyed his surroundings. Imagine what that moment would have been like for a man born blind. 
He can see. He's never seen before. Darkness is replaced with light, uncertainty with clarity. What was it like for this man as he makes his way back to his familiar street corner? He knows his way. He can sense it, but now he can see it. Like every mysterious sound has a meaning. Every intriguing smell, a point. All that this man has ever touched is finally understood. Life gains coherence. Everything makes sense. The shroud of uncertainty he had lived his life with has been lifted. The world around him has a newly discovered purpose. Why? Well, for one reason. He can see it for what it is. John's not a man of many words, is he? All he tells us, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, not to bore you with the science behind this, but the miracle of Jesus fixing whatever had been wrong with the man's eyes is actually dwarfed by the neurological miracle that also instantly took place. You know, it's been said sight takes place in the eye, but it's the brain where you actually see. Like, like keep in mind, vision necessitates something important. A, a chemical library of images, images you amass and begin to recall almost immediately following birth. We understand what we see for one reason, this cachet of images in our brain. And yet, this man's been born blind. He's never seen anything. You see, enabling the man sight wouldn't have given him vision. Like what's most amazing about this particular miracle and its unique context that he was born this way is that Jesus not only gave him sight, but he enabled him a cachet of images so he could make sense of what he was seeing. A most incredible miracle indeed. Now next Sunday, we're going to work our way through the various reactions that people end up having to this miracle. And yes, there will be an important contrast established between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's a crazy chapter. And yet, I want to take the time we have remaining to make what will be five overarching observations about this miracle, about this story. First, I'm struck by the reality that Jesus sees you even when you can't see him. Like Personally, I'm so encouraged by this reality. Like the very context for this miracle, a miracle that ultimately changed this man's life in a way he would have never thought possible, was the fact that as Jesus was passing by, and this man is totally ignorant of it, he stopped. And he saw a man who was blind from birth. This man doesn't see Jesus coming, but Jesus saw him. And as I mentioned, Jesus' actions, the word saw, it implies something specific and intentional, a deliberate act. Again, let me reiterate. What did Jesus see? As Jesus walked that Jerusalem street this day, he saw a man. 
Just stop there. No need to add a description. He saw a man. From Jesus' perspective, the man's blindness was a condition. It was not his identity. He just saw a man. Jesus saw so much more than what the world had left him as. Yes, he was blind, but that's not who he was. Jesus saw a creation of God, a man, a human being who had been afflicted by life and this tragic state of fallenness. A man afflicted by blindness. A consequence of sin in its macro sense. Sure, this man's condition had not been caused by a specific sin he or his parents had committed. His blindness was not the judgment of God or some form of divine punishment. The man had done nothing to deserve the plight that had befallen him. And yet, the effects sin has wrought on this world had taken a toll on the poor man. He had done nothing to deserve it, but he was blind nonetheless. And this morning... While your difficult and trying situation, like whatever the, that raw hand you've been dealt at no fault of your own, may make it difficult for you to see the person of Jesus. And doesn't it? When life hits us in the nose, it's hard to see. It's hard to have perspective. It's hard to gain clarity. We lose sight of Jesus. But I want you this morning to take heart knowing something most important. Even when you've lost sight of him, he still sees you. He always does. Jesus sees your plight. He knows what you're going through. He sees your condition. He's not ignorant of the things you're going through. And beyond that, most incredibly, he sees so much more than these things. He sees you, the man, the woman the creation of God. He sees you how you were supposed to be, how God intended it to be, not the person you presently are. You know, secondly, Jesus saw a need and not a theological conundrum. You know, one of the interesting contrasts in this passage is the way that Jesus saw the man as opposed to the way the disciples processed the situation. While the disciples saw the blind man, what did they do? They grew focused, consumed on getting to the root cause of his blindness. Causation. Jesus didn't care about causation. Jesus just cared about addressing his core need. You know, I found that it is much easier to end up like the disciples than Jesus in the presence of hurting people, broken people, real needs. And here's why. You know, sadly, we falsely believe that an explanation for how the need has arisen is paramount if we're to discover a solution. Sadly, that, that only ends up yielding legalistic remedies. Let me give you two examples. When faced with the alcoholic, what do we do? We almost automatically begin diving 
into the various causes. What's caused your alcoholism? And we do this, why? Because if we can establish why you're an alcoholic, we can set up a path as a remedy, a path for liberty. That often is accompanied by a lot of rules, things to follow. When faced with marital strife, what do we do? First thing we do is we look for a cause, causation. The ways that each of the two parties has contributed to the problem. And why do we do that? Well, we hope that if we can find those answers, it will yield some helpful do's and don'ts. I'm not saying that there isn't merit to it, but there is a problem with this approach. Get back to our scenario, this situation, this story. Even if the man's blindness could have been explained, even if the man's blindness could have been attributed to a specific sin, that wouldn't have in and of itself provided any kind of remedy. Oh, well, this man's blind because of this, this, and this. And guess what would have resulted? He'd still be blind. Just explaining causation doesn't produce a remedy. You see, the truth to all sin is that there really is only one remedy, regardless of causation, which is why Jesus didn't care. What was the solution to this man's blindness? It was the same solution to the alcoholic or those dealing with marital issues, or you fill in the blank. The remedy is an encounter with Jesus. We can go through all the lists of whys, but the solution is a who. It's Jesus. See, this man had been told his entire life that his condition was the judgment of God. The man doesn't need, he didn't need a diagnosis. He needed a solution. He needed a healer. The grand problem for humanity is sin. Your big problem is your sin. Sin's the culprit. You need an explanation, you're sinful, and you're fallen, you're broken. Which means that your remedy ultimately is what? A solution for that condition, sin. See, friend, the power of grace is found in the reality that while it affirms your brokenness, it's far more interested in making you whole. Thirdly, one of the things I take away from this passage is that hardships are always opportunities for Jesus to reveal himself. I know that's, again, a difficult idea to swallow. But there is no question. The man's blindness was instrumental in facilitating his encounter with Jesus. Like in this particular situation, while his condition wasn't a consequence of a particular sin, his blindness did create an opportunity where God could work in his life and in working, reveal Jesus. I don't know what hardship you've come to church this morning bearing. You live in the same world that I do, so it's probably something heavy. The truth is maybe whatever it is you're bearing is the result of your sin. Maybe it actually is a judgment. Or maybe it's not. 
Maybe it's just the results of living in such a terrible place. Regardless, there is a hope provided in this story. And it's that Jesus can use whatever that is to work in your life. That it's, it's not without a meaning or without a purpose. That Jesus can work, the works of God can take place, and in doing so reveal to you an aspect of himself that you would not have been able to see otherwise. I know from personal experience that it's in the times where life beats me to a pulp. It beats me down. The times where I'm at my weakest, that the conditions end up being established for something amazing. Where I can experience a supernatural strength found in Jesus I didn't even know was possible. Like in the end, it was through his blindness that he saw Jesus. And I can promise, whatever it is you're going through, it can be through that situation that you see Jesus in a way you've never seen him before. Fourth, Jesus will often work unexpectedly and when you least expect it. Like, think about this blind man. Sure, he understood his fundamental problem, but he had no power to do anything about it. He was blind. There was no remedy. As such, his life was just about survival. Surviving to live another day. Whether you want to call it a routine or a rut, this was his life. It's what he knew. He knew nothing else. You know, in no way did this man wake up that particular morning and expect that by day's end he'd see. Like he didn't wake up thinking he would encounter a healer. As he took his familiar place on that street corner, there were zero expectations. This would be the day his life would change. That the, 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 the darkness would be interrupted by the light of the world. That this would be the day what was mundane would immediately gain a clarity, a meaning, a purpose he had never experienced before. Like not only did Jesus see him while the man was blind to Jesus' presence, but Jesus had determined, I think as he stood there, to change the man's life forever, even though the man was totally ignorant of what was about to happen. And beyond this, spitting in dirt to make mud to smear onto the man's eyes, that wasn't the way this man would have ever imagined he'd be healed. You know, I've found that Jesus often works when you least expect it. And what's more, he often works in a way completely unexpected. Never underestimate what Jesus wants to do today. Finally, I know it's a very elementary point to make, but I still think it's important. And that's that Jesus came to give sight to the man born blind. You know, in our culture that's focused on social justice, the church has become overly consumed, I believe, with changing people's conditions as opposed to seeking the transformation of the person. That's not what Jesus did here. Jesus kept the greater need greatest. 
And this approach by the church, I think, is, is noble, admirable, but a little misguided. I think it's proven to be a distraction. Now, that's not to say that Jesus didn't, didn't care about this man's physical needs or the effects that blindness had in his life practically. Jesus did care, and what's more, so should we. And yet Jesus knew what we've forgotten, that the most potent, powerful way to affect a man's situation, his circumstances, is to see the man transformed. If you want to change a man's situation, change the man. Everything else will happen naturally. Now, there are some of you here this morning that don't even know you're blind. You don't even know what you're missing either. Blindness is all that you've ever known. You, you come to church, you hear me talk, you're exposed to Christian friends. And if you're honest, sometimes you think to yourself, these people are nuts. Like they're describing an existence that's a fairy tale. They live on another planet. And the truth is, I can understand why you have that perspective. Whether you want to hear it or not, the reason is that you can't see what we do. Spiritually speaking, you're completely ignorant to a, a world around you that exists that you can't see. Like, it's why I love this miracle. I, it's, it's one of the reasons I think healing the blind is the, is the most common miracle you find recorded in the Gospels because it's such a picture of humanity. Friend, know this morning that Jesus wants to do a work in your life very similar to the work he did in this blind, blind man's life. Like he wants to give you the ability to see and what's more, the ability to process what you're seeing. He wants to give you sight and vision. He wants to perform a miracle that will change the way you see and interact with everything. In closing, why didn't the man resist Jesus when he was plastering his eyes with mud? I think it's a question worthy of asking. Well, there was no way that the blind man would have known what Jesus was really doing, could have known what Jesus was really doing, right? Don't forget what he heard before the interaction. What did he hear Jesus say before Jesus acted? Well, the man heard Jesus say something religion had never said, religious people had never said, what the world had never said about him. And that's that his blindness wasn't the result of his sin, but was an opportunity for God to work. The man is chewing on that thought, which is why I don't think he resisted Jesus. You see, the man was willing to embrace Jesus' touch, though he had no idea what was about to happen. He was, he was, he was willing to allow Jesus to work, though he had no, no idea what would result. The man even was willing to obey Jesus' instructions to go and to wash, all while uncertain. The man doesn't become a believer till the end of the chapter. 
And yet he heard Jesus' voice. He heard the love in his voice. The fact that Jesus hadn't come to judge him. He heard a contrast. And he concluded, yeah, this is awkward and this is irritating my blind eyes. I don't know what you're doing. But I've heard enough. What do I have to lose? The man's first encounter with Jesus is literally just based on, I've got nothing to lose. And then as you work through the, the chapter, more and more of the revelation of Jesus begins to come to him. To the point he gets excommunicated from Judaism. They don't even believe he's the same blind man. His parents have to confirm it. Yeah, he was born blind. And it's at the end that he gets excommunicated, kicked out of the temple, isolated from the synagogue, cut off. Jesus finds him again. He says, do you believe? He says, yes. He becomes a follower of Jesus. You don't have to know everything about Jesus to at least reach a point to say, I don't have anything to lose. And if you'll do that, I think he'll give you the ability to see and most importantly, the ability to see him if you'll just give him a chance. This man made this decision. Will you? So Father, Lord, we just want to let that thought settle in. What a cool story. I do pray that if there's someone here this morning...